Hello and welcome to Every Horror Movie on Netflix, or actually, it's Every A24 Movie on Blu-ray. I haven't gotten used to the new uh, the new intro here because uh, we are standing in solidarity with all these striking entertainment workers in their moral battle against the studios and the streamers that are destroying art. And to that end, this week, well, I'm Chris, and I'm here with Steven. <laughs> Hi. And Patrick. Hello. And we are watching a pick from our listener, uh, Amon Superfan Bree, won our charity auction to uh, uh, pick the next film that we watched from the A24 catalog. And Bree selected The Killing of a Sacred Deer from 2017. Directed by, how do you pronounce it? Yorgos Lanthimos. Directed by Yorgos Lanthimos. Uh, so we are very grateful. How much did we raise from that auction? We raised $115 just from uh, combined Breeze bid and also a couple of donations that folks made on their own. And then we are also going to match Breeze winning bid so that we end up sending a total of $190 to the Entertainment Community Fund, which is a nonprofit that's offering emergency assistance grants to folks in the entertainment industry who are striking and uh, need help with their rent or other kind of basic needs uh, during this strike. So thanks to everybody who contributed to that because uh, it's, you know, it's it's $200. It's not the biggest amount of money in the world, but uh, I'm sure it's it's going to a great cause and it yeah. uh, every little bit counts, you know. You can get lunch in LA for $200. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, thank you to everyone who bid on that auction. Uh, we're we're so grateful to be able to raise money like this. You know, we, we haven't made any money personally, I don't think. I mean, we, we sell some shirts, we make a couple bucks here and there, but um, it's, it's nice that in lieu of us making money, we can uh, direct some money to causes we care about from time to time when the situation calls for it. So thank yeah, you we've... all who participated. Yeah, we've certainly made less than $190 in the entire five-plus years we've been doing this show. Yeah. I think we've lost money. Well, oh, for sure. We're like Paul Newman. <laughs> All profits to charity. Uh, but anyway, we always start the show with a little discussion of what else we've been consuming or seeing or reading in the horror sphere. Um, so what do you guys got? You can skip me because I got nothing. Oh, wow. Patrick. Patrick. I've still been on my, my manga kick. I've been reading a lot of horror manga lately, as you all know, and I've gone back to the well with one of my favorite, or perhaps just my flat-out favorite horror manga creator, Junji Ito. Uh, there's a new collection of his work that's uh, been published in English over here, and I love that they're continuing this steady stream of uh, new English versions of Ito uh, collections over here. But the latest one to hit American shelves is Soichi, that's S-O-I-C-H-I, -I, and it's one of his kind of most iconic characters. It's about this very antisocial young man, uh, kind of the black sheep of a family who uh, lives in this like attic sort of lair of his own and uh, has nails for teeth and just uh, cooks up all kinds of sort of demented pranks to pull on his family and schoolmates. Uh, the, the 
back cover of the book describes him as an anti-hero, which I at first didn't understand. And then as I went along, I was like, you know what? This actually does have a weird kind of fun anti-hero type of quality to this character just kind of pulling all these, uh, yeah, again, very anti-social kind of pranks on these very this very square cast of characters that surrounds him. So I really warmed up to uh, that character and had a lot of fun with Soichi. Um, how about you, Chris? I'm almost in Steven's boat. I've barely done anything horror related, but I did make it to the multiplex and I did see Talk to Me. Uh, oh yeah, me too. Um, and it was it was good. Um, it wasn't. I was. I think all the hype had me expecting something that was going to change my life. It's not going to change my life, but it's a solid, solid horror film. Uh, a lot better crafted and smarter than what typically plays at the multiplex in the horror genre. So good for everybody. Yeah, totally agree on that. I also want to give a quick um, shout out to I know a few episodes ago, I kind of teased that um, Allison with a Y and I are cooking up a special uh, Amon episode where we're going to continue the grand Amon tradition of reviewing every movie in a horror franchise. We've got every paranormal activity movie ever coming uh, to you in a few a uh, few weeks here, I think it's safe to say. And uh, we're also going to have some very special guests on that episode. Chris and Steven both gave a big fuck no to this endeavor, which I do not mm-hmm. blame them. Uh, but we are going to have some fun company for that episode. And I'm really looking forward to bringing that to listeners as a little uh, Halloween treat. That's great. I'll be participating in normal activity while you're doing that. Yeah, and well, Chris, we'll have to come up with a trick for Halloween for the podcast if he's handling the treats. Oh, yeah. Mm, nice. Mm. Well, that brings us to this week's order of business. We watch, like I said, The Killing of a Sacred Deer. And I don't even know how to begin describing this movie. Have, have either of you seen it before? I saw it. Um, I was trying to remember because... I didn't think I'd seen it, but then I watched it and I like laughed at all the same lines. Like I remembered them as they sort of came up and was perplexed by the same things. I must have rented it or something soon after it came out and had just kind of forgotten about it. I actually had sort of the opposite experience where I sort of thought I had seen it, but I think it was back in the days when I was still reviewing movies professionally and I got a screener of this and I think it sat on my like entertainment center with my intention to watch it for so long that I almost felt like I had. Uh, but I, this definitely was not familiar to me. I have seen some of Lanthimos's other movies before I've seen uh, the lobster and uh he did the favorite, right? Am I misremembering yeah. that? Yeah, yeah, which I weirdly haven't seen yet. But yeah. I've seen The Lobster and uh, Dogtooth. Well, I, I've mm. tried to watch Dogtooth twice and did not succeed in finishing it either time. <laughs> mm. mm-hmm. Well, this was all new to me, and I have not seen any of the director's other work, so I didn't really know what to expect. And I was, I was thrown for a little bit of a loop, so... The premise, <laughs> the premise is, and, and I feel like this movie, we, we'll get into it. The plot is sort of secondary to tone, I think, yeah. in this movie. It's a uh, vibe movie, for sure. It's a vibe movie, but it's about a <laughs> cardiac surgeon played by Colin Farrell, who lives with his wife, Nicole Kidman, and their two kids who are like, I don't know, it's like a 10-year-old boy or a 9-year-old boy and like a 13 or 14-year-old girl, something like that. And... Uh, he has 
a young man that he sort of has under his wing for reasons that are unclear and t- at the at the beginning of the film and uh this young man sort of goes uh, they have a kind of an awkward. Well, he has an awkward relationship with everybody, in this mm-hmm. movie. <laughs> but especially with his young little protege, played by what's his name? Barry. He's played Keoghan. by Keoghan, Yeah, one of our three Jokers. Yeah, one of the new Jokers. Yes, <laughs> and I can see. I can see why they made him Joker after watching this movie. Yeah. Um, but uh, bad things start happening to uh, Colin Farrell's family, specifically his children. They come down with uh, aff- afflictions that are mysterious, and his young protege might have something to do with it for a very uh, personal reason. Um, mm-hmm. But it's a it's a fantastic movie. It, it it doesn't make a ton of sense. It's not like a straight up thriller like I was expecting, and it's weird as hell. <laughs> it's weird as hell yeah it's a movie where like <clears throat> the it, it it's almost as if he, it's almost as if lanthimos told the actors like okay like here's the script here's the dialogue just read it <laughs> like, yes d- don't act it just read it and i find that the so most, fascinating yeah in the most distant alienated way possible and i mean you get the vibe from square one like yeah. colin farrell is having this bizarre conversation with his fellow doctor about their watches and watch bands and they're just talking like they're aliens trying to make sense of watches for the first time practically yeah and that's, it, and that's the way people talk to each other pretty much throughout the entire movie with the semi exception of the kyogen character who feels rightfully so like he comes off a separate planet kind of from everybody else I've never seen anything like it, and I don't really know how to describe it the way they're talking. And I wish, I wish we had like prepared a bit where we did the whole episode like this. Oh, that would have been. <laughs> but it's all just very flat. It's all there's no subtext in this movie. Everybody says what they're thinking and feeling pretty directly, <laughs> which is very interesting. And it, it, it's just, it's just a, it's a. It's a format choice that Lanthimos has made. And I don't know, is this how his other movies are? Yeah, well, the ones I've seen. The Lobster, especially. Okay. Also with Colin Farrell. It's almost like watching The West Wing or something, where there's like people who are a little too snappy, and and they're going through the dialogue Mm -hmm. in a scene. But it's it's flat. It's it's really hard to describe without playing a clip. We probably won't play a clip, but... It's it's very intentionally stagey, and it's even beyond the direction, the performance. Like it's written in very awkward ways, sometimes very formal ways, ways that no one would actually speak in real life. Mm-hmm. Right. I'm just. This is like my notes are going to be important for this episode for me at least because I just wrote down so many lines. I mean, even without context, like Colin Farrell says, uh, I believe to the Barry Keoghan character, he just says very flatly. Um, when asked how he's doing, I think, oh, our daughter started menstruating last week. But he says it in like, the most matter-of-fact way, and it's like, why would you, you know, like like a normal person might deliver that information with a little bit more nuance, or like tell like a story, a little story or something, and he just says it, and we don't think about it again. Mm-hmm. Well, and then when Barry comes over to their house later, this is one of the first things the daughter tells him about Mm -hmm. herself as well. She announces that she's recently started menstruating. I think even 
Oh, oh no, actually, I think she uses the word that started got my first period as opposed to menstruating. But nonetheless, it's still a very bizarre way to share information that people don't generally share broadly. Yeah, with and people like he, they don't know. He, Barry Keoghan is like smoking in her room, and he just yeah. says like. It's too late now. I'm addicted. Yeah, laughs so hard. Yeah, and it's a, so it's a funny movie. Uh, it's yeah. a it's a dark comedy, I think, and and deliberately so, even though it's it's quite upsetting at sometimes. Uh, it reminded me a lot of Bo is Afraid, actually. Mm. I got a big Todd Solon's vibe from this. I don't know if you've ever seen any of his movies, Chris. I know Patrick has at least seen no. Happiness, maybe mm-hmm. Storytelling. Uh, yeah, it was think the one so. he did with Paul Rubens, Year of not Year of the Dog. Um, but yeah, his his movies are like you know they're they're kind of like the original cringe factor independent films. I feel like where like everything is set up, everything is like very staged. The the actor performances are very stilted, and the dialogue is just as like unnatural and uncomfortable as possible. Almost almost in like a like a scientific manner <laughs> mm-hmm. it's awful people doing awful things generally yeah. too mm-hmm. it's impossible to tell how anyone's feeling really <laughs> outside of a couple scenes why they're saying the things they're saying it's it kind of reminded me so you know like black box theater right where it's like mm-hmm. there's no stage there's no props it's just the actors this is like it felt stagey to me but like the inverse of black box theater where there's everything except the actors are just people delivering the script and there's not really a great deal of acting going on and the script is also really weird i don't know maybe mm-hmm. a flawed analogy but that's kind of what i thought of I can see what you mean because, like, the production design is very kind of rigid and stately. Like, there's clearly a lot of attention paid to it. And there are times when, you know, it doesn't, it's not quite like hereditary level, or maybe even like Wes Anderson would be a good comparison, where like it's not quite like the setting is swallowing the actors, but it's pretty damn close to it. You know, it, 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 it dwarfs them. Like, even I, I just rewatched like the end of it before we recorded and. <laughs> Colin Farrell and Nicole Kidman have this bed with these in like like ten foot posts on it during the <laughs> scene that just like stand out in such a strange way that you you do feel like the the the, the performances the actors are just kind of starting to be dwarfed by or bleed into the scenery in an odd way. Mm-hmm. I did get a vibe from all that production design though, like, mm-hmm. and I was actually like sort of before I realized that like the acting was what it is in this movie. I thought that, Oh, like, okay. Colin Farrell is just like a really calculating guy. Who's like really precise with his language and how he talks. And I was like seeing that in the production design, like, Oh, you know, the hospitals got all these straight lines and like the, the, he's wears like a, a, a grid pattern dress shirt. And there's a grid pattern on the outside of the hospital and stuff. And I was like putting up, theories in my mind about like what's this movie trying to say about structures and control and stuff and it it very well may be saying things about those but uh that's that's not the main reason why everything's there and it's it's a it's a it's a poetry type movie and i i didn't used to appreciate movies like this i was a very plotty person as you two Mm -hmm. can probably remember i was like give me mark Wahlberg, give me a gun (laughs) Let me see who's shooting who in what order, and that's a movie. And now I'm I'm at that age and maturity where I can watch a movie that doesn't make a lot of sense, like this, 
or the Matrix Revolutions, and I can appreciate the poetry of it. And well, Chris, I can appreciate how it's so, the vibe and sort of the themes and the questions it raises more than the plot. I mean, without spoiling it, this movie features the literal exact opposite of what you just described. <laughs> give, oh, yeah. give, give me a gun. Give me a motive. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm so curious to hear, uh, especially your thoughts in the spoiler room on some scenes from this, because yeah. they seem so like outside of your usual frame of reference. Yeah, for sure. I feel like this means we need to revisit... Um... What was the movie that was just like the girl skateboarding around the town from like Amon year one? Anguish. Oh, anguish. Yeah. I knew it was an A, a one word thing. Yeah, anguish. I feel like we should revisit that and see how that sits with 2023, Chris. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think if you go back and listen to some of our early episodes from 2017 or whatever, you'll probably hear some growth uh, and change in what I look for in a movie or what impresses me in a movie these days. And I guess just watching a whole bunch of movies that are plotty gets boring. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I'm not happy about the strike, uh, but I am pretty pleased that we get to take this journey because I think we're learning a lot more about each other. We're getting exposed to things that are maybe a little bit more challenging in different ways than we're typically used to. Not to say that we don't see some great, uh, kind of, uh, off the beaten path movies, on our normal Amon journey, but, uh, yeah. Well, I said last time, last episode, when we watched Bo's Afraid, that I'd never seen a movie like Bo is Afraid. And I'm not sure I've ever seen the movie like The Killing of a Sacred Deer either. So <laughs> it's mm-hmm. kind of funny how just in a couple of weeks, my horizons have been broadened. <laughs> <laughs> And and within like and it's not like I'm going into like you know French cinema or something that would really you know push my horizons. It's like this is stuff that presents it. It lures you in with the promise of a genre film, and then about ten minutes into it, you're like, "Hold on, what's going on?" And you spend about a half hour trying to recalibrate. <laughs> and that was both these last movies for me. This actually reminds me of a, a reel I saw the other day that's like how A24 comes up with its movies. And it was just like a Mad Libs game. And the first line of the Mad Libs game is, okay, it looks like it's a blank movie, but it's actually a blank movie. Yeah. <laughs> Which yeah, is well, apropos to your description of this movie. But worth noting, as I think I or someone else might have on the, the previous episode of every A24 movie on Blu-ray, A24 doesn't usually make movies. Like, they, this movie was, like, produced and financed independently, and A24 bought it. So hmm. they're just, it's, it's kind of a strange confluence of, like, they have a vibe they're looking for, and mm-hmm. people independently of them just happen to be making those movies on a chance and getting scooped up, scooped up by A24. And I find that so fascinating in and of itself. Or making movies that they know will appeal to A24's sensibilities. That may be happening more now, um, but probably not back in 2017. I feel like that wasn't, not necessarily early days for A24, but you know, it still wasn't it was like earlier, a yeah. household term. Yeah. I laughed a lot. Once I realized it was a safe, once I realized it was a funny movie that was safe to laugh at it, I was mm-hmm. I was on this level and laughing a lot. And I like the sense of humor 
beyond sort of the stilted stuff and sort of the the awkward lines of dialogue that are kind of obvious there's like a lot of sight gags i thought were really funny mm-hmm. there's a the daughter we're introduced to her as a well, she's like a, in a choir and she's talking about how all the improvement she's made in the choir and how she wants to move closer to the front of the the choir and then not long after that there's a scene where she's singing by herself and it's just the worst singing i've ever heard oh in my, my god when <laughs> like, she's up against the tree trying yeah. to impress martin <laughs> yeah and like it take took me a while because it's it, it's not like a it's not like shot for comedy no it's just after you listen to her for like 20 seconds you're like wait a minute she's fucking terrible at singing and she sings like an entire song too i feel like she sings like a full three minutes i hope it was intentional i hope it wasn't just the actress doing her best no she's supposed to be it's definitely supposed to be cringy i don't know if she's like terrible but she's not she's not great yeah not great it didn't strike me as bad though And little things like, you know, the dad, Colin Farrell, lecturing everybody about wearing helmets on their motorcycle. And they all talk about how they wear helmets on the motorcycle. And then you just see a shot of them riding the motorcycle and neither of them have a helmet. Ah, yeah, of course. <laughs> it, it like seemed like the it seemed like the debate was like whether or not the driver had two helmets and or was sharing his helmet but there's no helmet at all <laughs> um everyone's always lecturing people about smoking and then you see every character smoking at some point yeah everybody movie. except bob i think <laughs> i think so <laughs> Frankly, um, the name Bob is just a hilarious name for a 10-year-old oh, yeah. in the year. Oh, yeah. The girl has a funny name, too, I think. It's Kim. 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 Just like, kind of funny. Fine. Kim and Bob seem like, yeah, out of out of decade <laughs> names for two kids. Yeah. yeah. And, and Bob, let's just say it. I'll, I'll tip my hand here. You know, possible Spirit of Jay Award nominee. Oh, well, thinking about it okay. i'm thinking about it. we got a couple more months left but uh I'm he does have some mr Banku energy yeah <laughs> <laughs> the funniest thing in the movie to me and i agree that it is blackly funny in many places um was so the the barry keoghan character invites colin farrell's character over to his house for dinner where his mother is played by fucking Alicia Silverstone, which I you know. don't see her in much anymore. I didn't I recognize her. Love, I would just love to know kind of the casting conversations that went into that, but she fucking kills it as mm-hmm. this very awkward, his very awkward mom who is trying to flirt with Colin Farrell. It's unclear if she's like kind of in on her son's demented scheme to fuck with Colin Farrell and his family, or if she's just kind of a loose cannon on her own but she plays this hilariously awkward scene of flirtation so well kind of culminating in the line you can't leave until you've tasted my tart because she baked a caramel tart for him it's it's such an awkward scene and i laugh my ass off at that line I, I wrote I wrote Alicia Silverstone with three exclamation points and an underline because I did not remember her being in this movie. And then the next thing I wrote was the tart line. I mean, I think I if if I was yeah. sipping a drink, I spit it out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, it's so good. Oh, yeah. She starts like commenting on his hands, which become a recurring topic of conversation, how mm-hmm. beautiful and clean his hands are. And then like sucking on his thumb, I think like he pulls away and she like is fully latched onto his thumb like he has to like yank his arm his thumb out of her mouth it's so weird and good 
a lot of this movie makes you uncomfortable. Oh yeah. In in like a all of it. <laughs> yeah. Literally every frame. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I mean there's so true. much stuff like again like I it, it had been so long since I'd seen it. I couldn't remember if I had seen it. So like I forgot really what was going to happen in this movie. And just the whole kind of plot thread with Colin Farrell going to meet this weird boy, like I it, it could have turned into something sexual for all I knew going into oh, it. Yeah. I mean, there's just a simmering tension of like, what is going on? Why are they meeting? Why isn't he talking to anybody about this? But we never really see anything intimate happen. They're just sitting at a diner talking about, you know, watch straps. I'm, I'm but it sure feels like that's... he's about to bone him. Like... Yeah, and that was that's all very, was very uncomfortable for me, and I think deliberately so, because like we find out like the reason they're getting together is fucked up, but the yeah. way they reveal the information late it gives you all this time and the way they stage things, you imagine something way more fucked up Yeah, and they let you do that. And you're just like, why is Colin Farrell like giving like expensive watches to this like 16 year old boy mm-hmm. um, and hmm. not, and not telling his coworker or his wife about their relationship. And they're like, like meeting in like, yeah, just like a nondescript diner, like a parking garage or like Martin is insistent on, coming over for dinner and Colin Farrell's like, Oh fuck. Well, I guess I have to invite him, you know, because he could, he could blow my cover. We don't know what the, (laughs) what the cover is for at that point. It could be almost anything. So I guess I want to offer a counterpoint to that. I found this to be kind of lacking in tension. I mean, yeah, I did theorize that maybe there was a, a sexual affair going on between these two early on, but I feel like at the very least, What's actually going on is hinted at pretty soon in the movie. And I don't know, maybe 45 minutes in, Barry actually like lays out his plan and confirms his motivation. Um, but also, yeah. like, he lays it out and basically tells you what's going to happen for the rest of the movie. Like, there are hardly surprises from there. It's just kind of the horror of watching how it plays out. And that oh, it's like also the most- felt like of a piece with kind of the tone of the whole thing to me too, is that there's almost this, this whole thing feels almost inevitable from early in the film. Yeah. I mean, I I would agree with you that I don't feel like it's a spoiler as to why he and Colin Farrell are meeting up and how they were connected. But I, I I won't say it unless others disagree, but that scene where he revealed, where he lays out his motives is like the most efficient info dump i've ever seen in a movie it to a comical effect like everything yeah. like every mm-hmm. other piece of dialogue in this he's just like okay this is what's happened this is what's happened this is what's going to happen There's nothing i'm gonna say it as quickly it. as i can yeah yes yeah. well it's like when you're you're writing a screenplay and you're doing a first draft or a treatment and you're just writing what the characters need to say in this scene to each other. And then you're going to go back and you're going to make it artsy and you make a scene out of it later. But you're like, this is the information that we need to convey. Mm-hmm. And we're, we're not going to have any subtext or anything. We're just going to write. And, and then they end up just making that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I would, I would agree with Patrick in that it is I, I I felt it was mostly tension free, except you know until that point, you know when when uh, uh, Martin kind of lays down Martin. the law. Uh, but it's a movie. It's almost like 
it's almost like an anti-thriller because mm. yeah again the, the dialogue is delivered so like succinctly efficiently and and like the the camera doesn't move a whole lot and yet there's this like booming pounding bombastic score you know that's like you're really supposed to be freaked out (laughs) but like but you don't know why and you're also not and i i found that at times amusing and at other times kind of vexing like what what do you what do you try to do a movie like are you are you a horror movie are you a thriller are you not in the end i mostly enjoyed that kind of weird interplay of tonality though I think anti-thriller is the best way to describe this movie. <laughs> Anti-birth. <laughs> yeah. Because it's like you wouldn't you wouldn't have to do much to make this a very conventional thriller. Yeah. Uh, it reminded me of other thrillers as I was watching it, but they just make the weird directorial choice so many times that yeah, it is ten- it is very tensionless. And I think we might have uh said it in a confusing way like the tension there's not like tension like a thriller, but it mm-hmm. is a movie that just kind of puts you in an uncomfortable and awkward space a lot. And it's yeah. like, it's yeah. up to you to get through this. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. That's, that's more what I'm talking about. Yeah. It leaves you in the tension of, of discomfort of just being around just squirrely characters. Who yes. You just don't want to be in their company for pretty much the whole film. At mm-hmm. almost no point, and I'm not going to say at no point because there were a couple scenes that I think are a little more dramatic and thrilling. Um, at almost no point did I really care what happened to any of these characters. <laughs> mm. hmm. But I, I, I thought I was riveted, though. <laughs> yeah. Oh, same. I mean, because yeah, again, even though, even though the dialogue is so kind of lifeless. There's something going on with the performances that I found very captivating. I mean, Barry Keoghan, like, as far as I can tell, can do no wrong. He's in so many mm-hmm. movies at this point that I love, even at his young age. Um, you know, even though he's kind of, like, leaning against the vibe of of the words that he's saying, it's somehow more captivating and somehow more menacing. Um, I mean, kind of same with Nicole Kidman and Colin Farrell, too. There are scenes where they're having arguments, and you wouldn't know it if you watched it with the sound and the subtitles off. Mm. You know what I mean? It's just, uh, it's so hard to describe. Yeah, Keoghan blew me away in this, and I've enjoyed him in other movies, especially like Banshee's Divine Sharon. Um, but, and he's, he's just so good at playing characters that just ain't quite right, you know, uh, yeah. and different variations on that. But this was so fascinating because he so plausibly plays just kind of an awkward young man, like a socially stunted teenager um, who wants to interact with adults but can't quite pull it off. And then it's uh, so much more disarming and disorienting when he then slips into kind of like supervillain, like revealing his fucked up potentially like almost supernatural plan because there are not like uh logical explanations for what ends up happening to this family you know no um it's it's such a strange singular character that he creates in this yeah they're just they're just cursed and it's like the mechanics of it it's like a greek myth it well, is literally I, an adaptation uh, of a Greek myth. Oh, yeah. is it? I thought I read that. Yeah, and oh, that makes a go. lot of makes a lot of sense. Maybe yeah, the 
the myth that uh, Kim's teacher references her writing a paper about in the scene where Colin Farrell, <laughs> that's a fucked up scene, yeah. goes <laughs> to talk to her principal. Uh, the myth of Iphigenia is what this is based on, which basically the idea is uh, Agamemnon killed a sacred deer uh, that was sacred to the god Artemis and then had to sacrifice one of his children to make up for that. And depending on various versions of the story, uh he I, I think there's one kind of version of the story that is not the original where he actually kills a deer and tricks the gods into thinking he did kill one of his kids but generally he kills one of his kids to a town uh, i think is the uh, idea i was waiting the whole movie to see a sacred deer <laughs> <laughs> oh boy guess it wasn't folk horror well, I feel like we, you know, like Steven said, I don't even know how much there are spoilers to this, but we actually have talked around the main spoilers pretty well at this point. So I agree. I think it might be a good juncture to just review this and then get into the, the meat of it. Yeah, I agree. Would you like to begin? Sure. Um, I'll give this a cue, which I guess I feel kind of bad about in a way because um, this is really well done. There's incredible vision behind it. Um, anything that feels awkward or uncomfortable uh, uncomfortable about it as an intentional choice and a well-made and well-executed one. But I, and this is kind of my problem with some of his other movies too that I've seen is I didn't know what the fucking point was in the end. It is so unpleasant to watch and I, I didn't take anything really away from it thematically um, and it's hard for me to recommend on that level um so yeah i'll give it i'll give it a cue it mm. how about you steven uh it's also a cue it for me for largely the same reasons uh i i i don't remember if i enjoyed it the first time i saw it because i don't remember watching it but i did have fun with it this time around um and i would recommend it to certain folks based on their tastes it's like oh if you like the lobster here's you know here's the same director doing something that's a little more akin to a horror movie but not quite you know like there's there's a there's a crowd for this but i ultimately don't know uh what i don't like to say i don't know what it means but it didn't really mean anything to me mm-hmm. um i i i spent some time thinking about the end and rewatched it before we recorded and i really you know couldn't, couldn't pull anything out of it um yeah kind of the definition of a stephen Kewitt. Chris, I'm going to, I agree with pretty much everything both of you just said. I'm going to reluctantly give it a view it. Um, It was good and it held my attention. It's weird. It's really weird. But like I said, like I appreciate that I haven't seen anything like this and I thought it was really funny. And I do wish that it had for as much of like sort of a poetry vibe it has, like I've been saying, it doesn't seem to have that much to say, but it might, I don't know. Maybe I just need to think about some more. I expected after I watched this movie that I would be thinking it over and like pulling out threads from it in my own head for a while, but I really kind of haven't thought about it much at all, save for recording this episode. So mm. kind of in one eye out the other, but it was a, it was a, not a bad use of two hours for me. If you've heard this uh, episode and it sounds like something you're interested in, check it out. But 
there's going to be a lot of people who want a more conventional story. If they're who, if they're going to spend two hours watching a thriller, want their like heart to pulse a little bit and get like invested in the drama. And that's probably not going to happen here. You're going to be like, who is this weird self-indulgent director? And who does he think he is? Mm -hmm. But if I were talking to myself a few days ago before I saw it, I'd say view it. All right. Well, with that said, we're going to go down to the spoiler room and spoil all the twists and turns of the killing of a sacred deer. Before we do that, let me remind you that you can find us in between episodes on social media at Amoncast, E-H-M-O-N cast. We're on Instagram. I think we're still on Twitter or X or whatever it is. We still got the handle there and we're on, uh, we're on Facebook and Instagram. I said one of those already. I forget which one. And we also have a website, everyhorrormovieonnetflix.com. It's in a state of disrepair, but it won't be forever. You can see a list of episodes we've watched, and you can go to our merch store where we sell T-shirts and things of that nature with artwork on them. That uh, And the profits from those shirts go to our pockets and not to charity. Um, Also, most importantly, we have a Discord group that is very lively we like talking to the fans there about whatever we're watching and whatever you're watching so find the link to that in the show notes and join our discord community if you haven't already oh and rate and review the show on your podcast platform it helps people find the show can i say something about the discord real quick yes i had a book club on there and i took a hiatus for the summer so i could enjoy enjoy the michigan summer and uh and also read 112263 by Stephen King. I did not do that. It turns out if I don't have a book club running, I don't read. So that's going to be coming back <laughs> soon. I'll probably do a little poll or something and uh you know, find something that's a reasonable length that's got some Halloween vibes to it to get it back up and running. So stay tuned. Hmm. Disappointed that you didn't read 112263. I mean, I will. It just didn't happen this summer. I'll be your book club for that. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> all right. <laughs> well, that's all we got to say before we go down to the spoiler room and spoil everything about the killing of a sacred deer. So go watch the movie now if that's what you want to do, or stick around and we'll be back in just a few seconds. Let's go kill this sacred deer. Welcome back. We're down here in the spoiler room to spoil everything about Yorgos Lanthimos masterpiece, the killing of a sacred deer. Yeah. So, I mean, I think we can say right out the gate, we got it. We got to clear the air on what's going on between uh, Steve is his name, Colin Farrell Mm. and Martin. Steve Martin. Steve Martin. (laughs) So I see what they see what Yorgos was laying down there. Yeah, so Steve, we, we, I almost actually just called him Steve Martin. Steve, cardiovascular surgeon, <laughs> he was performing an operation on Martin's father, and his father died. And Steve doesn't take the blame for it. He says, a surgeon is never responsible for a death, 
but the anesthesiologist <laughs> can certainly kill someone during a surgery. That was just another hilarious bit. Oh, it's so then good. Then we hear from the anesthesiologist, he's like, no, an anesthesiologist can never kill a patient. It's the, surgeon the surgeon is always responsible. The surgeon is always responsible, and it turns out this surgeon, Steve, uh, had a couple of drinks before he performed the surgery, though we're told that's that was commonplace at the time, which I believe because I have heard stories of... <laughs> Of people who have been in surgery and have seen, like, an old-fashioned on the table. This was, like, 20 years ago. Like, they woke up uh, under the knife? No, like, they just could tell before they even went under that the that, the, that the surgeon was drunk. He'd been drinking. Oh, my takeaway from that line was just that that was common for Steve at the time. Not that it was, like, common in his field in general. Because he used to, it's referenced earlier in the film. That's what I was talking about before when I say it's it's hinted at what happened here because uh, the fact that he has quit drinking and, I, mm-hmm. and there's some reference to, I think that he used to drink kind of heavily comes up rather early in the movie, which was what kind of clued me in pretty early as to what had happened with Martin's dad. Well, in either case, that seems to be what, happened and it seems to be that it doesn't matter who is responsible martin has chosen his target and he is going to make steve and his family suffer well, the consequences of killing I'm still, his father. i'm still thinking about the horror of waking up under the knife and you're paralyzed still but you see everybody's just drinking around they're doing they're do, the nurses doing are doing shots. a beer bong <laughs> I can't. I'm I'm baffled by this. Twenty years ago, doctors would just drink in the OR. I'm not saying that they that all doctors would, but that I know one person who said that she she spent a lot of time in hospitals um, throughout her life, and she said that she has she has seen it before. I huh. don't want a nervous doctor. No, I, I want, want a st- confident doctor. If he I needs- want a steady hand. If he's got the DTs, have a drink. Yeah, I Come want on, a steady hand, and I want someone who believes he can save my life. Holy not God. not some not some teetotaler with imposter syndrome. Come on, I want the Fuck same that. thing with my airline captains. You know, but if you're exactly, but if you're looking and you see, like. Like if he's drinking an old fashioned, that's one thing. But if he's drinking like, like parrot head lager, <laughs> rest in peace. <laughs> you know you might have a problem. <laughs> Jesus fuck. Anyway, but yeah, Barry Martin's uh, philosophy to get even. Um, well, you know, it's not explained. He's just magic. There's just a curse that he's put on by mm-hmm. virtue of having his father killed by Colin Farrell. He says, well, you know, you killed a member of my family, and so now you have to kill a member of your family it's for us to be even. And he says that his two kids and his wife are going to become paralyzed, which mm-hmm. the boy already is at that point. His legs don't work anymore. He says they're going to become paralyzed. Then they're going to stop eating. They're going to refuse all food until they starve. Then they're mm-hmm. going to start bleeding from the eyes. And then mm-hmm. they're going to die. And, and there's your movie. There's That's your movie. <laughs> <laughs> all of those things wind up happening. And uh, Colin Farrell eventually kills a kid to stop it. 
I always like a movie that that oh yeah because that's that's what he has to do he has to decide who in his family is going to die to stop the curse or they'll all die. Yeah. I like a movie that calls it shot like this and then and is like this is what's going to happen and then it happens. Um, well, it's great because you can't you like almost at least I like almost couldn't believe it. I'm like this is like this isn't a fantasy. Like how is this going to happen? And oh, it yeah, just Colin does. Farrell believes it. It just uh, does, well, he doesn't though. believe it, and but then he's like, "Eat this muffin," and all his kids are like, "Fuck you, dad!" And, um, <laughs> donut. Yeah. He like tries to cram a donut into his son's face as the son oh, refuses right. food. That's well, a, she, that's another like horrifying but also funny scene. Yeah, just dark comedy. It's 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 really dark comedy. I like Good seeing a uh, um, like Patrick. We were talking about. Uh, force majeure recently and this so has like kind of similar vibes to that like i like seeing like a buttoned up successful you know you know kind of wealthy family just unravel mm-hmm. i like just seeing it all fall apart all of the all of like the comforts in the walls they've built around themselves and suddenly nothing is safe that's fun for me mm-hmm. eat the rich mm-hmm I did feel bad for them. I mean, this is just a fucked up thing to happen to anyone. Um, And I, you know, I'm thinking particularly of some of these scenes where the kids are just dragging themselves around the house because their legs don't work. At at one point, the daughter has clearly mastered the art of like going downstairs using only her arms while her legs are paralyzed. And it is funny. Like you guys are laughing and it, it did strike me as funny, but at the same time, it's so sad and upsetting too. I mean, honestly, this is where the bow is a, Afraid kind of line comes back in for me where it just exists right on that tightrope between deeply disturbing and also funny. And I love it. That's that's my default sense of humor. Same. <laughs> so yeah. Bo is afraid and this have worked for me very well as comedies. But but yeah, it is sad though, because I mean the kids are pretty damn charming in this movie, as far as yeah. kids go. I I'm famously not one for kids in the movies, but mm-hmm. these kids are cute. Yeah, I mean, Bob is kind of a little shit, but he's charming, and Kim seems like a decent kid who's, like, rebelling against her parents eventually for pretty solid reasons, Um, so I especially felt bad for them, and Anna is, I don't know, the Nicole Kidman character is certainly not as fucked up as Stephen, but um, not a pleasant person. The the ranking, the family ranking for me goes Kim, Bob, Anna, Stephen, Stephen being way down yeah. the bottom yeah i would support that rating and then and then barry keegan martin above all of them right? <laughs> i mean fuck him too he's a he's a terrible person as well there's no there's no like winners in this there's no uh redeeming characters in this movie to me that i think lends to the comedy too right just the fact like all of these people just kind of suck on some level i had a soft spot for bob but I feel like Bob even does some kind of annoying shit. <laughs> yeah, he's a little shit. <laughs> this might be a stretch, but I thought that Nicole Kidman was channeling uh, some of her other roles, specifically Eyes Wide Shut. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Dude, that shot of her in front of the mirror, that has yeah. to be a fucking Eyes Wide Shut reference. It has to be. And also when she's just like writhing around on the bed, like sort of she- like... Passively yeah. arguing with Colin Farrell, which I mean, Eyes Wide Shut's like 
kind of a similar story too about a doctor and you know he's got everything all set up and he kind of goes on a little morality play (laughs) Um. well or when she's having very weird sex with colin farrell like colin farrell's kink is for her to do what she describes as general anesthetic where she just pretends to be either (laughs) out cold or dead in lingerie or naked while he presumably has sex with her yeah i think he just masturbates doesn't he the first it kind of cuts it's I, I think it's pretty implied that he's about to actually like have sex with her okay. the first time it happens although later in the movie it's pretty funny too because things are kind of falling apart between them and so she strips down and just like sprawls out lifelessly across the bed as if like presenting herself to him and he just turns off the light yeah. and ignores her <laughs> Um, She's like, make also, love, not war. But, and then he's like, let's not do any of it. Let's go to bed. Yeah. Sorry, Chris. But also she kind of acts like a Stepford wife. Uh, so I thought mm. of her in, in that role because like so much of this move, the dialogue is about like who's watering the flowers. <laughs> and like you see her <laughs> out like watering the flowers in the middle of the night when the kids come home and stuff. And yeah. just like sort of her, her like role is to be the one who like maintains the household or delegate the responsibility of maintaining the household, even as the kids are dying. <laughs> so what's that term yeah. people are using now where like you act like a fifties housewife, uh, you know what I'm talking tra- about? Trad wife. Yes, yeah. she's a total hashtag trad wife. Yeah, <laughs> I I want to go back to uh, Martin's shot call for a minute because the other interesting thing about the way this all plays out is the way it um, kind of encourages you to seek a logical explanation for everything that that goes down here. There's a there's a fixation with lemonade. There's a lot of talk about lemonade and and about food early in the film. Where, you know, as these horrible illnesses start to affect the family, you go, oh, okay, so how, how's this guy doing this? Is he like sneaking poison into the lemonade or something? And that is all just kind of thrown out the window eventually. It's basically red herring. And there's no, there's no attempt to explain this. And it no. only becomes more sort of implausible his control over this scenario. You know, I mean, truly like basically godly control over this family and there's no explanation for it which is really a fascinating choice and certainly makes it more terrifying yeah, yeah. i thought of that too like i was looking for an explanation because he gives the kids uh keychains sort of out of the blue mm-hmm. which was also a funny scene because he's like you're a singer i got you a keychain of a music note but it's, yeah. it's the treble clef it's not a note <laughs> <laughs> i didn't oh even think of that, yeah. Yeah. that either. just like little sight it- gags like that and then he's like, and Bob, I got you a smiley face keychain. Oh, right. <laughs> like Kim's is very like sort of tailored to her interests, and he just gets the other kid a smiley face. Oh my but god, I-, I got the biggest laugh out of him giving her the MP3 player. Oh, the all the all the conversation back. about the MP3 player is hilarious. Like, I don't know what's wrong with me. I've lost two MP3 players in the last week. Can I have yours when you die? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> or or like the very first time that gets brought up she's like is that my mp3 player and he's like no it's mine she's like can i borrow it and he's like no you're gonna lose it like you lost yours or something <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway all good stuff but yeah any any attempt you might have or theory you might have about how he's controlling the situation uh kind of goes out the window by the time he like 
he's talking on the phone with Kim from the hospital parking lot and is able to make her better. And she gets out of bed and walks to the window to see Mm -hmm. him and is able to walk back and then her legs don't work anymore. So Mm -hmm. it's, it's just complete fantasy at that. Unless he's got the, the nano machines that, that cry check put in Skinner (laughs) in that one episode. (laughs) You just turn it on and off. Uh, There's, there's no scientific explanation for this. But this eventually ends up going full prisoners and Steve kidnaps Martin and holds him prisoner in the basement, beats the shit out of him, shoots him in the leg, trying to oh, yeah. rest back control of, of this situation. And big, then Martin takes a bite out of his own arm. Movie. Yeah. Martin sure. takes a bite out of his own arm. Mm-hmm. Pretty horrific. And he says something like, like, don't you get it? It's a metaphor. Yeah. And, <laughs> yeah. Which I thought was funny, but like also effective. I mean, he's basically saying, like, whatever you do to me, it's not going to be as bad as what's coming to you. So I don't give a shit. Yeah. I'm still getting my revenge, bitch. <laughs> well, a metaphor for what, though, I guess? I, I felt I, like that was almost a kind of nihilistic thesis statement from Lanthimos himself, basically saying, like, there is no metaphor here. Like this is just about maybe. Mm-hmm. I mean, I kind of kind of tying back to what we were saying before about how it feels like, you know, there's a lot of well crafted vibes here, but what the fuck does it all mean in the end? Well, and he I wants... felt like it was it was just kind of flippant, like a metaphor. I'm not going to tell you what for because it's really not one. There is no real significance to this. There is no meaning to this. Well, he's kind of obs- obsessed with this idea of m- having like that justice has to mirror the situation, right? Like, Mm -hmm. like you killed a member of my family. Therefore you have to kill a member of your family. It's like, whatever happens to me is going to happen to you, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So I think that's how I read the the biting thing where he's like, Mm -hmm. Oh, you know, I bit Mm -hmm. you. That was wrong of me. Now I bite myself. Just like, you're going to have to bite yourself when you kill your kid. Yeah. There's an interesting line related to that too, where doesn't he say something along the lines of, I, I, I'm not saying it's right, but it's the closest thing I can think of to justice. Something like yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. Uh, <laughs> basically, there's a there's a succession of very fucked up scenes where all the characters are just forced into hilariously fucked up decisions to try and figure out how to resolve this situation. Because even once in prison, Martin doesn't give a shit. He's not he's not going to change his plan. He says, kill me. And you're basically killing four people. You better dig a big hole because all three of your family who have, who have been, oh. you know, poisoned or whatever's happened to them are going to die. Which so is just like, so hard shit to say when you're tied to a chair. I yeah. laugh so hard at that. You, you better dig a big hole. Yeah. <laughs> just, his delivery is fucking genius. It's so it good. And again, like all the logistics or all the stuff you would see in a normal thriller about like, how are they going to get away with imprisoning and murdering this guy? How are they going to get away with killing one of their kids? How is he going to get away with burying all his whole family in the backyard? If it comes down to that, mm-hmm. not important. There's, <laughs> it's, it's, there's no law enforcement coming for our heroes. Oh yeah. There's no thought of calling the police no. in this movie. Like, I mean, even so, well, I mean, in, in real life, what, 
would happen you know i mean like okay i guess it comes out that you had two drinks and you know what's what's going to happen to the doctor in the end of that situation probably still fucking nothing nothing it's never going to be an investigation or anything yeah yeah like this is again as chris said before like kind of just pure fantasy but yeah, like that that's the same fast. kind of law enforcement you get in a Greek myth. <laughs> like, yeah. Like you, they don't say officer, I saw a woman with snakes in her hair turning people to stone. <laughs> it's just it happens. Yeah. <laughs> well, and like the, the I I don't remember how long ago it was in the narrative, but like like the father died some time ago, right? It's been like a couple of years yeah. maybe. Yeah. So yeah. it's like that's that's done with. But I do understand in kind of the fantasy nightmare logic of this movie, like once you start associating with this kid and once things start happening to your family and it seems like somebody's going to die, well, you don't want to call the police because one, you can't explain it. You're going to sound crazy, you know, trying to explain like, okay, I've been trying to appease this kid. His father was my patient. He died. And now my son can't walk and my daughter can't walk and there's blood coming out of their eyes and they won't eat anything, you know? So they are kind of trapped in like a nightmare that, that they just have no control over, mm-hmm. and and I I enjoyed that sort of like almost kind of kind of dream logic of it, I guess. And yeah. it's it's interesting that like Colin Farrell's character like feels guilty, like even though he says he's not responsible, he feels guilty. He stopped in between the death and when the movie starts, he stopped drinking. He doesn't drink at all anymore. Yeah. Um. And like he's obviously trying to look after, if not take care of, this kid as like a surrogate father to atone for what he did. Mm-hmm. Um. Uh. You know, I didn't read that in particular that way. I I read more. He was scared of the kid and mm-hmm. trying to protect himself. I didn't get any real sense of concern for the kid. Oh, in the beginning, it's hard to tell because they're not. There's no like love coming across in the line deliveries, but. Taking them out to the dinner, giving them a watch and stuff. Like, it it seemed like surrogate. It seemed like I was watching Manchester by the Sea. (laughs) Interesting, because I I think I was... uh, My read on it was closer to Patrick's, where I felt like this is a desperate man who is doing something that makes him deeply uncomfortable, that he has to hide from his family, because he is terrified of what this kid might do to him. Mm. Um, Trying to placate him. But it's, again, it's, I think he was just ashamed of why he was hanging out with him and like doesn't want him at the hospital because he's here because I killed his dad in the OR. Well, it's I mean that that's what's so fascinating about this movie, right? Is there there in almost any interaction, there are multiple ways that you can perceive it because of the liminal space that the line <laughs> deliveries exist in. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I loved, and we hinted at this scene before, but the, the, again, kind of the family ends up making some very fucked up uh, decisions as they try mm-hmm. and figure out how to navigate this situation once they do have Martin in the basement, and that clearly still is not affecting anything, because Martin doesn't give a shit. Mm-hmm. Um, when Colin Farrell goes to the principals, goes to the kid's principal <laughs> to basically kind of attempt to question him to figure out which of his kids is to use his own word best like he's asking you know what subjects are they good at how are their grades yada yada which is also hilarious just in the context that he's their father and he should already know these things and not have to go to the principal to be like well how are their grades Mm -hmm. what subjects are they good at so good and the and the principal also brilliant piece of casting like what an everyman ass actor just this guy feels like you know just your average school principal and he keeps 
he's not giving Colin Farrell what he needs in this scene. He keeps saying, well, they're both very, very good. They're very talented. <laughs> They've done great work in class. And Colin Farrell finally gets down to just saying, well, which, which of them is best? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And of course the principal yeah. declines to answer that question, but yeah. it's so funny that like that he's using that as his moral barometer for which yeah. one he's going to kill. Yeah. <laughs> But another, like, dark joke of the movie, I think. Like, so basically, this culminates with, I guess, Colin Farrell deciding he has to kill a member of his family. At this point, like, like Bob's eye, which I thought I was not expecting that much blood to come out of Bob's eyes. Let me tell you. That was pretty, <laughs> that was pretty funny. <laughs> um, he puts them all in the living room with bags over their head, and he just spins around like a sloppier version of eeny, eeny, miny, eeny, meeny, miny, mo <laughs> with a hunting rifle, mm-hmm. and just takes wild shots through his living room until he hits somebody. Yeah, because he's pulled a, a mask over his own eyes, so he can't see. Oh, right, so he can't see. Yeah, he's trying to do this completely blind. Uh, and he ends up killing Bob, the the young boy, the first one to get sick. <laughs> After he hits nobody for the first two shots, yeah. of course, because he's just dizzying himself up and taking random shots in the dark in his living room. It's such a, I mean, again, it's another very fucked up, but very weirdly funny scene. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he kills Bob. And it's like, I think it's like a dark joke where like of all of them, Bob, I think, is like the most innocent person in the whole movie. Absolutely. <laughs> like, I don't, he, I can't recall an he's example a of Bob. Deer. Yeah, I can't imagine Bob, recall an example of Bob doing anything weird or mean or selfish or anything that's just not like normal, um, as opposed to everybody else. But of course, he's the one who has to pay the penalty for everything. Well, I don't think he's the sacred deer, though. If you're mapping this onto the the original myth, the uh, Martin's dad is the sacred deer because the Agamemnon oh, yeah. in the story has to kill a kid to atone for having killed the sacred deer. So but didn't Martin's you say that? The deer. Didn't you say that Agamemnon might have tried to trick the gods by killing a deer and saying he killed one of his family members, though? Right, but I don't think that maps onto this because he's not necessarily tricking them by killing well i uh, thought it was cute okay hmm. <laughs> that's that's all i was mostly being facetious oh gotcha but <laughs> but the curse the curse is lifted and i mean i think it goes from there bob's killed pretty unceremoniously and then i think yeah. the next thing we see what do we see next do we see anything before they go to the diner no no. You just see him back in the diner where I I is it the same? It's the same diner, right? Yeah. Where, yeah. Mm-hmm. where Colin Farrell takes Martin and but now it's his him out with his family, like the end of the Sopranos. They're eating in the <laughs> diner and Martin's at the at the counter looking at them. And it's a little I mean, they have a pretty normal dinner and then they leave and Martin's stuck stuck staring at them uh walking out walking out the door. And it's a little bit poignant. You get the sense that Martin didn't get everything he wanted out of this. No. He didn't get the girl, his dad's still dead, and they're a happy family because they can still have another child. <laughs> That's what Nicole yeah. Kidman said. <laughs> yeah. <yes>. Yeah, she <laughs> rules herself out of the possible kill-ins at the end because she says if we if we kill one of the kids, I can have another kid, which is <laughs> fucking hilarious it's too. So good. <laughs> it goes into detail, but we, we can do in vitro fertilization. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, God God bless all the actors involved in this. It, it must have been 
you know, not I don't think just any actor could could understand the assignment for this movie. <laughs> I was thinking that the whole time, and at least Colin Farrell has worked with Yorgos twice. Mm-hmm. Um, he was the star of The Lobster, and he was fantastic. And I I didn't ultimately like that movie all that much in the end. Like, there's an hour of it that just kind of goes nowhere for me. But but he is so funny doing something that is so specific that I don't know how you could put it into words mm-hmm. as a direction for an actor. Mm-hmm. I is, don't know either. He is consistently surprising to me, especially over the last 10 years or so. And I think honestly, it's because I, you know, whatever was growing up in the aughts and, you know, kind of had him pegged as just like the pretty boy, but he is fucking talented and it makes so many of his his more recent roles extra effective for me because I underestimate him and then he knocks me out. Mm-hmm. It's weird because I I hear that a lot and I totally understand why I've never underestimated him. Mm. I'm more like, why isn't this guy in more like leading roles in mainstream yeah. movies? And it turns out I don't, he's not interested in that. I don't. Yeah, he I think he likes the weird shit. Yeah, he likes the weird shit. I mean, even back to the first thing I saw him, it was probably in Bruges. You know, yeah. where he's playing. You know, yeah, he he is a pretty boy in that movie, but he's mm-hmm. playing so like against type. He's playing just like a despicable dumbass character. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of like a you know Kevin Klein with his mustache on sort of role. Mm-hmm. And, and he, from then on, I'm just fascinated to see everything. That, I'll see movies just because he's in them, even if I don't, I'm not familiar with the other talent. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that said, how is he in The Batman? Because I know you guys have both seen that, and I haven't. Uh, I don't he, like The Batman in general. But. It's not a great movie, but he does what he's supposed to do very well. Yeah. Mm, okay. It just bothers me because it feels so much like stunt casting. It's like... Yeah. Colin Farrell's pretty, and we put him in a fat suit and makeup and whatever. Amazing! And you even you know can't even him. tell it's Colin Farrell. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's and that's what you're supposed to think the whole time is, wow, you can't even tell it's Colin Farrell. And it's I don't know. I mean, he yes, he does his job. Um, and, but again, I think it's another example of just like he likes to do weird shit. And he's like, sure, you you want me to play this character that is about as far from like my physical type as possible slap me in some crazy ass prosthetics and have me fight I'm on screen for five, (laughs) 10 minutes. Sure. Let's do it. Yeah. It's, I think it fits into his set of interests. I just, we, I could spend way too long talking about what I don't like about the Batman. It's kind of a Johnny Depp move. At least. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, but even beyond Colin Farrell, like we got kids, we got kid actors in this movie. How do you explain this assignment to kids of that age who have done like silly kid family stuff prior to this? You know? Yeah. Crazy. Yeah, it's I a, don't. It's a weird assignment for everybody, for sure. But I don't know. Straight, straight thought about this movie though, because this, I did put this in my notes. It, it is an interesting pairing with. Bo was afraid because I felt like there were a lot of similarities to the Nathan Lane, Amy Ryan chapter of Bo is afraid in this. I mean, oh yeah, with with the the, the you know the, the medical professional with the kind of like fucked up dysfunctional family that are all behaving in this sort of surrealistic fashion. I I 
I don't have anywhere to go with that, but it, it <laughs> did kind of uh, similar it, it setting and me. similar sense of humor. Similar, similar, sense, similar sense of humor, and it's, it's just interesting looking at two movies that came out five years apart. Uh, one produced by A24, this one, and one financed by A24, Bo is Afraid. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. I guess they haven't lost their touch. Hmm. Well, that's your movie. That's your movie. Well, what, what A24 movie are we watching next, Chris? I don't think it's my turn to pick, is it? Yeah, because yeah, it is. I picked, and then we did basically the wheel with the auction. Yeah. Oh. All right. I'm unprepared. Give me give me a minute here. But um, uh, while we were recording, we got a little message on uh, Facebook from a listener who said, the best thing that happened to me and my boyfriend in a while is that you guys switched from Netflix to A24 movies. <laughs> I knew it. I knew the fans would fucking eat this shit up. <laughs> oh, that's so, delightful to hear. But don't get too excited, because we're, we're going back. <laughs> we're going back someday. Yeah, I mean, honestly, like, let's be clear. We hope to go back as soon as possible, if only so that the strike can be resolved and people can, you know, get paid what they deserve and get the benefits they deserve and that... You know, Hollywood can stop being so, and the streamers can stop being so fucking stupid and greedy. But I mean, know, really, this is. Meantime. Yeah, I mean, really, this is the primary bargaining chip on the table right now in this strike is our podcast format. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. All right, guys, I'm gonna pick a movie that I think you both have seen, maybe multiple times, but I haven't. But I own it on Blu-ray and have had it on Blu-ray for like tw- you know years and i need an excuse to finally watch it we're gonna watch the lighthouse oh yeah yay by robert eggers of the witch fame and the northman fame and the northman fame with nicole kidman it's all it's all coming full circle nice i'm excited the lighthouse yeah and there's a reference a prominent reference to a lobster in the lighthouse so oh right another little connection there it's the Shared universe. I'm excited. I have some preconceptions, I think, of, of what this movie will be like and what it'll be about, uh, just because it's been sort of in the in the cultural space for several years, but I'm looking forward to seeing it. Hell yeah. All right. Well, that'll be in two weeks. We'll be watching A24 produced The Lighthouse on every A24 movie on Blu-ray, and I will be watching this on Blu-ray. <laughs> You know what? I might watch it on Blu-ray with you. Well, you're welcome. All right. But until then, like I said, check us out on social media at AmonCast. Join our Discord. Tell us what you thought of The Killing of a Sacred Deer. And we will see you in two weeks, right? So for every horror movie on Netflix, I'm Chris. I'm Patrick. And I've been Steven. See you later. 